Welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. I need to, you know, do my best so that I can prove to them that they made the right choice, um, which, you know, they made the right choice by offering you the position in the first place. Um, and so you have to sort of trust that and trust yourself. In the Women Who Code Career Nav segment of our show, you'll hear real world advice from people who are currently working in the technology industry and personally know the steps needed to succeed. Hello, welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. My name is Sarah Healy. I'm the digital design manager here at Women Who Code. Uh, today, I'd like to give a warm welcome to my guest and my best friend, Catherine Cuellar. Uh, I invited Catherine to join me today to talk about pay equity, um, including money, tech, and the experience of jumping from one male-dominated field to another, which is technology. Um, Catherine is currently located in Atlanta, Georgia, living with her new wife, congratulations, um, and their two dogs, uh, Nordy and Coach. Um, Catherine works as a JavaScript implementation manager, concentrating specifically on web accessibility. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for joining us on this conversation. Um, I'd love for the audience to get to know you a little bit more. So let's start with how you got started in tech. Hi, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I feel so honored to be a part of this uh, community, Women Who Code, and this podcast. So fun. Um, yeah, so I got into tech, um, I guess, professionally back. I started making the transi transition in 2018. Um, but I got my first actual job in the industry in 2020. So it's still relatively new to me. Um, but I, yeah, I, I found myself sort of wanting something more in my professional life and realizing that I wasn't really learning anything new anymore and wanted that to change, which is why, you know, in tech, especially in software engineering, you're, I'm never going to know everything. So that was the most exciting thing to me um, that I could potentially just always be learning new things. Great. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your current job um, and just the day-to-day -day duties that entail with it? Yeah. So um, I currently am the JavaScript implementation manager. I manage a team of about 20 developers contracted. Um, of those 20, really probably 14 or 15 are actually working, you know, more than one or two days a week. So like part-time to full-time. Um, and my team's job is to uh, write JavaScript remediations for client sites to make their sites more accessible to people who use assistive technology. So um, whether that is a screen reader or if they use just a mouse or a keyboard to navigate, if they are visual users, um, our software um, helps the client soft client websites that we're a part of. Um, become more accessible to those people who use those technologies um, so that it is easier for them to navigate so that they're able to, you know, interact with everything that a visual mouse user is able to interact with. Um, and my team's main job is uh, sort of going through each individual client site, um, finding those issues of web accessibility, finding the things that are inaccessible, um, and writing JavaScript remediations to fix them. Sounds cool. Um, I know just from personal use, because I do know a lot about you already, but I know that web accessibility, I'm just going to say, I feel like it is important to you in general, just because your background, um, you're very passionate about just 
accessibility in life in general, whether it's through like ASL or, you know, anything like that. But do you want to tell us a little bit about what do you love most about your job, especially yeah. working with web accessibility? Yeah. Um, so one of the big things I think was so tough in my old career and my old job, especially especially in the last job that I had, was that I feel like I wasn't making a positive difference in anyone's life. Um, and with web accessibility, the, the work that I get to do every day, I'm sure I'm paid a salary to do it, but above all, I feel driven to do my work because I'm making changes on client sites that will positively affect a user's experience and potentially increase the number of users that are able to actually interact with the sites that I work on. Um, it's a huge, huge sort of barrier, especially after the pandemic when everyone went super digital incredibly quickly. Um, there were, you know, there were people that just like went from being able to go places and do things and buy things to sort of being stuck in their house and having the only thing that they could buy things on be their computer. Um, screen readers can do a lot of things, but only with what they're given. And a lot of times, because there's so many ways to build a website, um, there are a lot of ways to build it incorrectly. So, uh, or at least uh, in a way that a screen reader doesn't understand. Um, and so what I get to do every day, I know is actually making a difference in people's lives, which was a huge help to to me personally, just as, as a person who cares about the impact that I'm leaving on the world. I don't want to like, you know, work for a company for the rest of my life that only just wants to make money and, and, you know, makes people's lives worse. Uh, it is, it is important to me. So that's what, the thing I love the most about the company I work for and, and web accessibility in general. Yeah. I feel like there is definitely like a lot of obviously a lot of negative things that came out of the pandemic, but some of the positive things was increasing web accessibility as general, because mm -hmm. there were a lot of people that were not used to going on the internet that were forced to being on the internet. Right. And I feel like in the last three years, especially in my background with design, that web accessibility is, you know, sometimes the main topic of anything, you know, it's the right. first and there's look at any anything you're like, is it accessible? Can this do anything? So yeah. And especially with like legally too, you know, there's laws in some states, but there's no federal law that says that, you know, websites have to be accessible to specific groups of people. Um, so I know that California is one of the states that has like state laws um, that, you know, lay out the fact that, you know, all websites have to follow these specific guidelines. Um, so it's it's definitely something that people are looking more into. There's been talks about federal laws um, and the increase in number of lawsuits for people is is huge. And that's a big part of um, what my company does as well is, is for our clients reviewing those lawsuits and you know basically debunking them, making sure that the, the claims in the lawsuit are valid and uh, you know, fixing the issues that are valid and, you know, pointing out the fact that some of the uh, claims are invalid. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, we always say like tech for better good. And I feel like web accessibility is kind of the first place to start. Yeah. So to kind of circle back, the main reason why I brought you here today was to talk about, um, we are right now in the era of um, well, Equal Pay Day was just a couple weeks ago, um, and Women Who Code has an equal pay survey going out until the end of April or beginning of May, something like that. But 
in general, I wanted to bring you here because outside of this, we talk a lot about pay equity, the two of us. And um, it kind of, what really sparked me, it began with how you mentioned being promoted to management um, in a short amount of time. And one of your male colleagues, that was your former manager, recommended you for it. Um, so let's start there. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that experience, how you kind of rose to management short, and then we can go further into it. Yeah. So when I started uh, at my company, um, I was actually one of the first contractors for that position that they had hired. It used to be a salaried position. The pandemic happened. They restructured the organization and then they decided to make that position contracted. So I was the first contractor actually that they hired for that new team. Uh, the team at the time when I was working on it at its largest was you know, seven or eight people. And then my manager, who is uh, a salaried employee, I, I was doing uh, the development work for a while. Um, I, I figured out pretty quickly that I was like, uh, understanding the concepts really quickly. And I think my manager recognized that. So um, I started becoming the person that would do, you know, the larger sites, the harder projects, the, the tougher implementations. Um, and then uh, he got his uh, sort of dream job in fintech um, and said, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable leaving this position if I didn't have somebody that I knew could do this job. And that's you. Uh, do you want to interview for this? And I, at the time, obviously it was contracted. Um, I didn't have health insurance. And so I was like, I can't really turn down. Like, even though I for sure didn't feel like a manager at all, I was like, why the hell are you like asking me um, to, to do this? He, you know, I, I couldn't turn down the opportunity. Um, so I interviewed for it. And uh, are we are we talking about the like salary in general? Yeah, I know. Well, I don't want to get straight into it, but we might as okay. well. I know yeah. that like obviously you were moving from contract right to a salary position right. And how did you start? Did you ask him straight off the bat like how much does this position like? Obviously, he was in it. So did you straight off the bat just say like? How much is how how much is the salary for this? Like how much I give I give him a ton of credit. He was incredibly transparent with me. He was like, you know, I, I want you to interview for this. Um, when it comes time to negotiate salaries, straight up, I make um 90k. Like you should ask for 90. Don't go for anything lower than that. Like they should be able to meet you where you're at because that's what I make now. So that's what I was able to do. Like thankfully had he not sort of given me that information or if he was, you know, a lot less transparent about that, I would have just sort of been, <laughs> uh, sh shooting in the dark. Like I had obviously no management experience in tech at that time. Um, so I didn't even know what the possibilities were, especially with the amount of, um, you know, technical experience that I had. I had only been a contractor with the company for about 10 months. So like less than a year going on a year, but still like not a ton of time. Um, and so I give him super, you know, so much credit for that. Um, and then when I ended up asking for that amount of money, uh, they countered with $10,000 less. So they countered with $80,000 um, for a job that he had just been doing <laughs> for, you know, that amount of money. And the reason they told me why they couldn't offer me 90 was because of the fact that he had more experience than I did. And I was like, okay, I get that he has more management experience. 
in this company, in this position, for sure. Like he was this manager for three years in this position. That's fine. Um, and then also at the time, I didn't really have an option to say no to $80,000, you know, as, as a salary, that was more money than I had ever made in my life. And, and it also came with health insurance and paid time off and, you know, all of the benefits that come with being a full-time employee. Did you look up when he kind of started like, you know, playing around with this idea of you applying for this position that he was leaving since this is such a niche, like sector of tech, Mm -hmm. um, you know, cause you're managing, you're just, you're managing developers underneath of you right. and it's in web accessibility. You're working with a specific program, JavaScript. Did you look into like what, um, the common salary was for management with those specific details? Was it around the price that he was getting paid? I didn't do too much research only because, the position, like you said, is so niche. Like I knew I was going to be managing developers. That's one thing, but I also was going to have to be training developers. It's also, you know, project management stuff. So I have to keep track of sort of everything that everyone's doing and making sure that they're meeting the timelines that are expected. Um, And so it was a combination of a lot of things, but I did know when they offered me the 80 that most of the reason why they were offering 80 is because they knew that I didn't have the experience to be able to sort of stand up for myself and be like, I'm not taking 80. Like I will do this for more. Um, they did offer, um, along with the salary, there are, um, quarterly bonuses based on if you hit metrics or not. Um, and so they were like, well, you'll have the opportunity to make, you know, if you get, if you meet all your metrics and you get all of your hundred percent of the bonuses that we offer, um, it'll be about 88, which is close enough to the 90 that you are. Yeah, yeah. But then now that I think about it, I'm like, okay, well, if he was making all his metrics, he would have been making a hundred thousand dollars. Exactly, so like, yeah. what's the, you know, it was, just, yeah, it was just it's something fine. that like, like no in, in, in my like inexperience of, of being able. And also I honestly had never negotiated as a, a salary before in my life. I didn't yeah. know that that was a thing until yeah. I had already accepted the position. And one of my friends was like, you didn't negotiate that. And I was like, Oh, I didn't realize you could. <laughs> I feel like that's such a taboo thing, which now we're in this new generation where it's like, we need more transparency on pay sure. and it shouldn't be so taboo to negotiate. I mean, also if it's a position I think like no matter what, however much like experience you have, if you could do the job, you could do the job, you should be getting paid right. the same amount that someone else was doing the exact same job. Exactly. Now, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I do know, can you tell us, this will kind of maybe shock the audience a little bit, but um, how many people were on your team when he was leaving versus- When he left, including myself, um, there were eight contract developers and him- as the manager. So a team of total male. of nine, including the manager, but eight, eight contractors. And they were all men. Um, all men except for me. Yeah. Okay. So seven men and one woman. And so now, um, okay. So now you're in this, you did spoiler alert. Catherine did get the position. I got the job <laughs> and I accepted the salary, accepted the salary. So, um, what are kind of like your expectations versus, I guess, reality you're now in this position, you're a manager an implementation manager, Um, what are some things that you've learned 
now you've been in this position for almost a year now, correct? Uh, almost two years. I'm going almost on like okay, okay. a year and uh, eight months or so. Okay. So over two years. So what has been kind of from where you started to where you are now, as far as how we asked for a raise, you know, what's, what's the workload been like? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, initially going in, especially because of my, uh, severe, uh, imposter syndrome, I felt the need to (laughs) come in and do work all of the time, do my best work, like show them, uh, you know, you made the right decision hiring me because I will work for you all the time and never stop working and do all of the work and never say no to anything. Um, And unfortunately, you know, again, yeah, (laughs) the naivete of sort of not knowing how to set boundaries because I hadn't had to deal with that before, um, sort of bit me in the butt a few months later when I realized I was working probably 65 hour weeks and no one was asking me to work 65 hour weeks. It was just the baseline that I had set for myself. So then I felt like if I started working any less than that, then my manager would be like, you're not doing your job, you know? Um, (laughs) so I definitely went into it sort of swinging way too hard, (laughs) um, instead of sort of setting, like settling in, allowing myself the space and the time to learn what I needed to learn to get adjusted. Um, there was a time when I, especially when I ramped up hiring, um, that I was doing training sessions for eight, like, you know, four and a half to five hours a day. And then I would still have pretty much eight hours of work left to, to, to do at the end of the training day. So I was working, you know, crazy hours. And then I was doing two weeks of training once a month for three or four months. So really every two, every two weeks, I I had a new cohort of, of people that I hired. Um, and it's, it definitely was not, (laughs) I didn't come into the job expecting it to be easy, but I did not expect it to be as challenging as it was. And I think part of that was me not being able to set boundaries for myself. Um, and part of that was also, um, sort of the company realizing how much I would work and then that becoming the expectation. Yeah. Do you have with this, I feel like this is a very valuable advice, but for women, especially in tech that are probably kind of starting at the same level as you, new manager, thinking that have to give everything that they possibly have to get to like, make a certain amount, get that raise, get that good yearly, you know, review. If you could go back and redo it again, like what advice would you give to yourself or to other women who are also kind of starting at the position of early management level? Yeah, um, I definitely would say that because you set boundaries for yourself does not mean that you are any less good of a manager than the person who was the manager before you. Um, You don't have to set yourself at a higher standard than you yourself have seen just because you feel like you need to fill some sort of void, especially with imposter syndrome. Like some people, you know, might not experience that, but sometimes imposter syndrome doesn't manifest itself as thoughts in your head saying, oh, I shouldn't, why am I doing this? I'm not good enough. Sometimes it's, oh, I need to, you know, do my best so that I can prove to them that they made the right choice, um, which, you know, they made the right choice by 
offering you the position in the first place. Um, and so you have to sort of trust that and trust yourself. Um, but definitely learning how to set boundaries for yourself and recognizing when um, it's ex like it's definitely okay to say no <laughs> to certain yeah. things, you know, yeah. especially when you're first starting out. There's so many, even though I had been working in at the company for 10 months, there was so much more I had to learn when I first started my management position that I didn't know as a contractor or as a lower level employee. Um, so allowing yourself the space and the time to like learn those things without being overbearing of, of all, all of the pressure that you're putting on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. I think that's a, a big thing that a lot of people just starting off really in any industry, especially like either you're out of a boot camp or out of college is that you set such high expectations for yourself when you have to realize like, you got to give yourself a break. One, you have to learn to say no. That was very hard. I know personally for me. Um, okay. So kind of going segue into a different direction. Um, let's kind of go back to the benefits of tech and how you decide to go into tech. And I feel like money, um, we started talked about pay equity. You got your big, your first, like, quote unquote, I'm doing air marks. If you're listening, uh, big girl salary. Um, I know that you and I had this conversation where we were like, we're going to get into tech because we're going to make the money and we're going to go on the trips. We're going to do this. What are some of like the expectations versus reality when it comes to money in the tech industry? Like you could, let's start from there. Like how you first got into tech and maybe a little yeah. bit about your original background and why you yeah. decided to switch careers into where you are now. For sure. So, um, I actually went to school where we met, um, yes. listeners, if you're listening to our, um, alum Savannah college of art and design, <laughs> um, go bees once a bee, always a bee is what <laughs> I always say. Sure. Um, the, uh, yeah. So I studied, uh, sound design, which is basically audio engineering in college. Um, and got into that industry out of college, like professionally and realized pretty quickly, like I mentioned before, um, I had pretty much already learned everything that I was ever going to learn, but the rest of my career was just going to be increasing, like, you know, practicing my skills, getting better at what I was doing, but it wasn't necessarily going to be learning anything new, um, which was incredibly depressing <laughs> when I realized that it was sort of an existential crisis, uh, of sorts. Um, we love a and crisis. <laughs> exactly. A quarter life crisis for, I mean, I was, just so, so lost. And, and I was like, I've just been working so hard for my whole life. And now I'm just, this is it forever. Like I don't get to, you know, try new things or learn anything new. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I was making really terrible money. Um, I was working at a company at the time that really did not value any of their employees, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. So, um, but again, at the time I, I really didn't have another choice. Um, but as far as like the expectation of tech, obviously tech is this sort of elusive thing where there's huge companies like Fang companies, you know, when I, when I first found the boot camp, which I can get into in a little bit, um, that I took, I was like, oh, I'm going to take this boot camp. I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to work at a Fang company. I'm going to make six figures. It's going to be the best. I like so long audio engineering don't need you anymore, which is absolutely not <laughs> what ended up happening. 
Um, we're almost there though. The six figures are right around the corner. We're, we're pushing six. We're pushing six now. So, um, yeah, so the, I, I sort of, you know, had this existential crisis realized that I wanted to make a change, um, and decided I had to invest in myself like monetarily, uh, and took out a loan and, um, you know, pretty much emptied my savings on top of taking that loan out uh, in order to join a boot camp. Um, the boot camp that I took was at Georgia Tech, Georgia Institute Institute of Technology. Um, and the reason I chose that over other boot camps um, was because uh, the boot camp allowed you to use the Georgia Tech name um, as you're, you know, after you graduate. So I graduated from this program at Georgia Tech. Um, although it's not a degree that I got, it was a certificate that was backed by the Georgia Tech name. So um, that felt really good uh, rather than, um, you know, any of the other boot camps that I had researched and were offering at the time. Uh, and the, you know, it was, it was pretty expensive. It was, I think it was $10,000 at the time that I took it. Um, which I think expensive for me, at least, I think that's like, that's kind of a common price, like with other, especially in Atlanta, yeah. um, other boot camps that's yeah. around the same. I think that was the cheapest option. Overall. Yeah, it was the cheapest option. I think general assembly at the time was around 12. I think there were some that were like 13 or 14, close to 15,000, yeah. um, which, you know, is a reasonable amount of money when you think about how long the program was, at least. How long was your program? My program, so I did the part-time program, which means that uh, we only had class, you know, two or three times a week, um, but it, it was, was six months long. So it was 20 hours a week for six months. Um, okay. They did offer a full-time program that was, you know, obviously a 40-hour-a-week thing, um, but Very I was working full-time at the time, and I didn't, I couldn't afford to quit my job in order to do this. Um, So I like, you know, talking about barrier of entry into tech, I could have, you know, I, at the time when I was debating whether or not I should make this huge investment at the time, you know, $10,000 was, and is still a lot of money. Um, I was like, okay, let me, you know, take all of the free online code Academy courses that I can possibly take to see if I even like this, if I, yeah. if I'm interested in it, if I'm good at it. Um, and so, you know, all of those free courses, YouTube videos, you know, there's textbooks on JavaScript that you can read. I'm not a textbook kind of girly, but, um, you know, there are, I'm way more of a, you know, I, I need to sit and interact with a human being or some sort of a program that will, um, ask me questions and accept answers from me in order for me to learn something new. Um, I, I sort of blew through all of these, you know, Code Academy classes that I took, and found myself sort of wanting more, um, which is why I was like, okay, I think it's I think it's a good idea to spend this money on myself. Uh, so I, I decided to do that. Um, so the barrier of entry isn't nothing, right? It is, you know, I did pay a good amount of money for that boot camp. If I had gone to, you know, a university and gotten a computer science degree, that's obviously a lot of money. Um, there are ways to get into the tech industry that aren't super expensive. Whereas uh, in the audio engineering industry, um, most colleges that offer programs like that are pretty expensive. College is 
expensive in general. It's 2023. The government doesn't want us to have free college, so you have to pay for it. And uh, so I, you know, I went to school for it. I graduated with a good amount of student debt. And then after graduating and getting into the workforce, um, you basically have to, in whatever specialty your specialty is, whether it's um, live music mixing, whether it's working in a studio, whether it's um, working on a set of film and television, which was my specialty, um, my concentration in college, uh, all of those paths to get into professionally require you to be able to work for free, uh, which is the most expensive thing of all. In my opinion, your time is so valuable. And for (laughs) the entire industry, essentially, to expect you to be able to give your time up for free and not pay you anything for the experience uh, is a little crazy, but I did it anyway. Um, I feel like that's such a thing with art school. It's like, but it's for the experience. Oh, it's yeah. for your resume. Exactly. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I couldn't afford to, and, and it was super, I was super jaded for a while because I had found this thing that I really loved. I loved the four years in college I spent working on it and studying it and, and, and getting better at what I was doing. And it gets the professional side of it. Uh, I'm out of college. I have to do this for money now. And the only ways that you can really, especially in uh, the location sound realm, break into that industry is you either have your own kit that you can work on super tiny, like less than indie productions for no money, basically. Um, uh, or you have to apprentice under somebody on a very large you know, studio set um, for free. Again, apprentice is in air quotes. Apprentice really means come show me that you know how to do this for, you know, the entirety of the free internship. Exactly. Uh, an unpaid internship to show somebody that you know what you're doing so that they'll hire you for. Do you want to let, I kind of know just because we have a lot of friends that work in the film industry. One, just to kind of like also add on top of that, the film industry to work in is like, if you keep up with anything that's happening with unions and stuff like that, it not only like is disappointing in the fact that you really do start off with making no money, that it is also physically draining on your body because a typical work day on film is a 12 hour day. And And that's, that's just, that's just from the moment that we start shooting to the moment we stop shooting. There are yeah. people that and are there that for also, 14 to 16 that's, hours. That's typical if you don't even work in the union. If you're right. not part of the union, like they could overwork you. Oh yeah. That's, there's a whole discussion about that, but I feel like there are like a lot of negative things really that are just actively happening in that industry and, you know, in general, but right. how much and is a kit to get started if you were to like a boom operator or anything a good quality kit so uh recorder um a good boom microphone two wireless lobs with the receiver um that is not going to break on you in three years is about a hundred it's close to a hundred thousand dollars that's just a running gun that's like super bare bones (laughs) (laughs) exactly so if you want to buy a house and then but you know it's 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 also like an investment, right? So if I did have somehow the money to put down to buy this thing, then eventually 
it's like setting up a business for yourself. So you can, uh, when the, when a production hires you, they hire you and they rent your kit off of you too. So it's yeah. like, you're getting paid for your time there. And you're also getting paid for the equipment that you're lending this production. Um, right. but again, who has a hundred thousand dollars laying around to be able to buy this equipment? Um, privileged people essentially. So I did have a few people that I went to college with that were able to, you know, finance a kit immediately out of college, if not while we were still in college, um, to be able to do those, you know, running gun, super small sets, um, for a while. And, and I know people that still do that. Um, I also know people that, um, had, interned, you know, again, quote unquote, interned on, uh, on sets while we were in college. Um, so they, you know, had a good group of, of, of a, uh, what am I thinking? It is called networking. They had a network of people that they had worked with, uh, while they were in college that were willing to hire them again for free, um, in the professional industry when we all moved to Atlanta. Um, so after, their one, you know, free production that they worked, they were able to get a paid job on a different set. Uh, unfortunately I was, you know, I, I just didn't have the money for either of those. I was working full time as a retail employee because I needed to pay for my rent and I didn't have the opportunity to be able to take off weeks at a time to make no money so that I could, you know, potentially have the potential it's not even a guarantee to have the potential to get a paid job in this industry later on um so it's very dis- disheartening and, and it was also frustrating because uh it's such a it's such a boys club and they're so um gatekeepy about a lot of stuff they yeah. You know, if somebody liked you and wanted to sort of take you under their wing, they would mentor you. But if they didn't, it was a lot of like, I don't know you. I don't know what you know. So I'm just not going to like invest anything into you, any time, any you know possibility, um, which was super, super tough. So it's like, not only do I have to pretend like I'm not offended by the fact that you think I'm an idiot, right? I just spent four years in college studying this stuff. I have a a reel of things that I've worked on. I have a resume of all of these projects I've worked on. I know I've worked with all all of this equipment that you're working with. Um, But it's also like, it felt so, um, it felt so exclusive. Um, and there were at the time when I tried to enter the industry in Atlanta, at least there was really only two, um, like mixers who were in the union, who were women, like that were doing like, you know, multiple sets. Like there was a group of probably 12 or 15 mixers in Atlanta at the time, there's probably more now. Um, but of those 12 to 15 that were doing, you know, all the Marvel stuff, all the reality TV stuff that's here, all of the, you know, multi-cam stuff, there was only two women. Um, and it's, and, and that they were also, you know, because they came up in this gatekeepy sort of community, that's sort of how they were as well, which was really disheartening. So that kind of like leads me into the next thing to sort of segue, um, you're now leaving the male dominated industry and now we're re-entering into a whole new, very well-known male dominant, male dominated industry, which is the tech industry. Um, 
Do you want to talk a little bit about, I'm going to kind of segue more into your tech career. We're going a little bit back and forth yeah, to our no audience. Worries. I apologize. Uh, but I do want to kind of segue into um, after leaving um, the film industry and the audio industry, sound design industry, um, you're now into this new one. And we're here to find community. Um, I know that one thing, in fact, that you did as a manager, you hired more women. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about like, have you found a community within the tech industry, especially with women? And then what it's been like as a manager, now you kind of have full control to kind of eliminate this whole gatekeeping situation. And it's no longer a boys club. It's now a girls club. It's exactly. now a women's club. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, the thing that I think uh, was the most exciting to me uh, about joining the tech industry was that it didn't feel quite so exclusive. Like it did feel elusive. I'll say that like tech was the sort of thing that like seemed like an exclude, like not an exclusive club, but like a club where like only the cool people were. But then yeah. when you actually start trying to break into the tech industry, you realize how, um, sort of far reaching the, the community is in general. So it's not just software engineers and that's it. There's like a whole other realm of people who do different jobs, um, who, so because it's not just that one specific thing where you have to know all of this specific information, I feel like, uh, the tech industry in general is a little less gatekeepy. Um, I, that being said, I, I have had interviews, you know, in the past where, uh, I feel like I'm in the interview and the entire time, one of the people is just trying to trip me up and show me that they know more than me, which yeah. like, obviously, you know, more than me, I'm a junior engineer, like, duh. <laughs> um, but uh, in general, the, the people that I've found the most community with and the most willingness to share experiences and to share knowledge has been um, other women in tech. Uh, and that's not to say that there aren't men that I've found, you know, support from my manager, who wasn't the manager position before me, who offered me this position, um, has been such a great, you know, resource for me, um, has helped me with, you know, <clears throat> the, not only the position that I'm in now, because he had the experience, but also um, helping me expand my horizons and like, you know, keeping me up to date with different platforms that he's working on and stuff like that. Um, my current manager in my position now, uh, my, so my boss, um, has been nothing but a champion for me and within the, the company, which has been so nice. Um, but I feel like because it, it's traditionally a male led industry, I feel like there's just a little bit more of a camaraderie between, um, you know, between women and the other, you know, non-binary folks that are a part of the, uh, of, of the tech community. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, that's good to have. I think, I think from my personal experience of talking with so many women and gender non-confirming people, like within the tech industry is that really to kind of overstep the whole, you know, what was traditionally was like a bro club really, right. you know, back in like the Silicon Valley days and was such a male dominated thing is just like finding mentorship and like really harboring that, like a strong mentor to have mm -hmm. to kind of 
lay out a path for you, whether it's a man, whether it's a woman, whether it's whoever, your manager, your your manager's manager. Um, I think that is like the most important thing to kind of break through the barriers of tech is just finding a mentor or yeah. being a mentor and kind of like helping, having that sort of quote unquote buddy system yeah. within it. Um, okay, so we talked a little bit about you're transparent with your pay. You started making $80,000, which was a significant increase compared to what you were um, when you were working in audio engineering, um, which I feel like this is a very, um, a big thing in anyone who enters the tech industry. There's a little bit of a lifestyle change. Um, do you want to talk about um, maybe you had more access to a 401k? You could finally start contributing to that. Also, your lifestyle changed a little bit about that. Do you have any financial tips or any tips in general that you want to touch on related to those? Yeah. So um, I'll be transparent too. As an audio engineer, the last job I worked, again, mentioning that they did not value me as an employee. <laughs> um, I think the most I ever made there was probably 35K a year. So going from that to contracting even, contracting, I was, um, the way that they paid out um, wasn't per hour. So it wasn't a guaranteed amount of money. It was per task completed. So, um, but with that sort of structure, I was on track to make probably close to 60,000 a year. Again, like double what I was making before, even before I got this management position. Um, that that being said, obviously I was a contractor, so I didn't really have, you know, all of the benefits of being a full-time employee. Uh, but when I got this management position, 80K, again, $50,000 more than I was making at my last salaried position. Um, and definitely a lifestyle change. I wouldn't say I like was able to buy a house and a new car and, you know, pay off all my student loans. That's not true. Um, but it just makes things a little easier. It makes, you know, gives you a little bit more of a cushion. Um, I was never, ever, ever able to like the, the paychecks I was getting at my audio engineering, um, job, they offered a 401k match, but I wasn't making enough money to be able to contribute anything to my 401k in general. So, um, I'm able to do that now. Um, so that's a huge help, a sort of huge relief as far as like knowing that I'm putting money into my future. Um, I am able to, I was able to, like you said, get married. Um, I, Congratulations. I was going to say, you. You, probably, you did have a big life, uh, like a yeah. big milestone in your life happen. Yeah, I got engaged and married, um, which was nice. And, and, you know, I'm able to, we were able to throw a wedding that we, that, you know, the wedding that we wanted for our friends and family and for our, ourselves. Um, I, it, it's a lot, again, it's, it's not like, I'm not making six figures. I'm not the richest man alive, <laughs> but uh, I do feel more comfortable. Um, I'm not constantly checking my bank account to make sure that I can afford to pay for groceries and gas. Um, I am able to save money. Um, I was able to save enough money uh, that we had to, we had to, I had to pull out from my savings account because our AC went out last summer. So mm -hmm. to have to replace that, but you know, I'm able to, uh, put money aside after paying all my bills and all of that stuff for a savings for a rainy day fund for something like that, yeah. uh, which has been so helpful. Um, it's not, you know, it, it, it is a lifestyle change in that I, the stress around money is, is diminished 
quite a bit. And it's only up from here, baby. It's only (laughs) up from here, baby. That's what we say. So, um, yeah, I would definitely, I mean, I, I was definitely in that same boat as far as the 401k before I, you know, kind of really started taking off in my design career, but I would assume you do contribute to your 401k now. I do. Um, Does your company offer like any like stocks or bonds or anything like that? So they don't offer a 401k match, but we do have, we're publicly traded. So they offer, they started offering RSUs. So uh, if you recommend that to someone who might be starting in a position like yours? Um, Yeah, I, so I know nothing about the stock the stock market <laughs> essentially um but the one it's a thing journey it's a financial journey a few people was when your company gives you stock units unless you are working for like a thing company where that stock is never really going to go down a lot um yeah. it's better to sell those units and diversify your portfolio rather than having all of that stuff all of that money invested in one specific thing. Yeah. So I don't treat it necessarily like um, a cash bonus. Some people do that. They'll just immediately sell their shares as soon as they vest and treat it like a cat, like an additional cash bonus. Um, definitely down for that too. But um, I, because I wasn't able to contribute to my 401k for so long, um, I do half 401k and then half in just a diversified um, investment portfolio. That's smart. Especially when you live the life of not having it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Um, that was very valuable information. I know that there's a lot of people who are probably, they are definitely career transitioners from maybe even a low level tech career position. Now in a management, they have this opportunity to have access to this, you know, these benefits that they might've not been able to have before. Perfect. So thank you. So do you have any pro tips for women in tech? It could be financial related. It could be really anything, but um, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Can I have more than one pro tip? Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. Pro tip number one, um, a lot of sort of entry level positions in tech are contract based, which means you're not going to be an employee of the company you're working for. You're going to be employee for yourself. Um, If you have the opportunity, start an LLC for yourself um, so that you can work as a contractor under that LLC. So the, uh, you know, you separate your finances from your personal self so that, you know, if eventually, you know, if you go bankrupt, they can't take your home and your car away from you. They just take the assets of your LLC, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously worst case scenario. Um, The also be aware of like the taxes as you're a contractor. I had never worked as a contractor before, um, but as a contractor, I definitely was sort of um, not slapped in the face, but I realized exactly how it's much. It's a bit of a wake up call. <laughs> oh yeah, a bit of a wake up call with with how much differently uh, contracted workers are taxed than uh, you know if you have a W two. So keep that in mind. Um, another pro tip, I think I'm just going to harp on it again. Set boundaries for yourself. Um, be okay with saying no. Like you saying no to something does not mean that you are a bad employee. Doesn't mean that you are going to get fired. Like you uh, are well within your right to say no to, to something. Um, and I would say the, my last pro tip is invest in yourself. If you find yourself in a spot where you're like unhappy, I don't know what to do. Um, 
take the time to, to sort of self-reflect. And if you find something that you think that you will really like, um, you know, spend the time, spend the energy, spend the money, if that's what it is to, to make yourself better and, and invest in yourself. I'm still investing in myself. Even after the boot camp. I'm, you know, learning new programs on Udemy, you know, those courses aren't free. So I'm still, you know, investing money in myself and trying to learn as much as I possibly can and expanding my, my knowledge and my skill base. That's amazing. I definitely agree with the LLC situation, especially with what's happening in the atmosphere right now. We're going kind of, well, we've never really left it, but we really are in a gig economy. And I feel like there are a lot of people in the tech industry that are contract workers. Um, So that's, I think the most important pro tip. It might not seem big, but it is big. It is big. Um, Okay. Well, do you have any final things you want to say? Um, Where can they find you? Oh yeah. I, you can find me on LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Add me on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't know if my like photo is public on LinkedIn, but definitely add me on LinkedIn. I pretty much add everybody on there. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Uh, Catherine Claire connection. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, you know, I'm probably the only one there. Um, And then, yeah, uh, I, I think that's it. Yeah. Professional LinkedIn. You can find Catherine Cuellar, C-U-E-L-L-A-R on LinkedIn. Um, And I'm sure that she would love to talk to you more about your journey in tech. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. Um, You could share your story through our equal pay survey that's currently happening. Um, You could take the Women Who Code equal pay survey at www.typeform.com forward slash equal pay 2023. If you're looking to be part or support the Women Who Code community, join, volunteer, and or donate at womenwhocode.com. And finally, um, if you might be interested in a position in either web accessibility or looking for a contracted developer job, um, you can visit our job board. I know we have a few out there for job hostings that are created for candidates just like you um, and definitely include pay transparency, which is very important. Um, And you can visit womenwhocode.com forward slash jobs. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash Women Who Code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.